0: very first chapter, you know, uh, Jesus... By the way, what's the name of the book? Revelation. Now, if you didn't add an S on it, that's the other half of the point from saying Revelation earlier. So, now you get a full point if you didn't say anything else. Um, that's right. It's Revelation. Now, it's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that mean it's about Jesus or Jesus is talk, uh, giving it? Yes. yes. Thank you. The answer is Yes. yes. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah. See, it's it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's him being revealed, but it's also him speaking. He is the one who is giving the revelation. He's talking to John. He's standing there. We see him in his exalted form. And what does Revelation emphasize about Christ? who is it's a good one here. This one. He is. Well, it is coming. To him coming back. But he is the Lord. Oops, what? Sorry. Yeah, he's the Messiah, but what, when you say the Lord, what do you mean? God. Yes, deity. It's an emphasis on his deity. Over and over in the book, it's an emphasis on his deity. Um, and we're going to see some of that tonight. In fact, it's going to come out in some really cool ways. Should I get there? Alright, so it is a very real letter to seven specific churches. Um, let's see if I... It's way back up there. Um, I should have gone there first. I should have put the slide in. There we go. So here's John on this little island over here called Patmos. And there's these seven churches. Here's Ephesus, Smyrna. Um, Those are the first two that we covered tonight. We're going to get to Pergamum. And I hope we get to uh, Thyatira. And then we'll follow up with the the last three. Um, We won't get there tonight, I promise you that. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea over here, but these are all actual, real churches. Now, some people have used um, said that well, these are really talking about seven eras of the church. I've heard that taught before. I would submit to you that that's that's not the primary teaching. Um, that these what type of letters are they? Closed or open? Thank because I gave you the choice, choices, five points, if you did just come up though, It was a multiple choice, not a fill in the blank. So, um, yeah, these are open letters, meaning what? Meaning that not only are they specific to these churches and real things that they are actually dealing with, but they're also meant for other churches to read and other individuals to read. They're meant for us. It tells us in the very first chapter, it says, verse one, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Given to us, because we're supposed to look at these things, apply them to our lives, how does this apply to us, and how do we make this, how do we make, um, how do we take the lessons that Jesus is teaching them and apply them to us, individually and corporately? All right, so we covered the first two churches, the first two letters, and Jesus is speaking Is using this pattern. He gives a, um, he's speaking to uh, the angel of each church. And he says, To the angel of, now, um, we talked about the angel. Is that, what kind of angel is that? yeah, a heavenly angel, a real angel, okay? We talked about the different options. And that, and of all the different options, an actual angel makes the most sense with the type of literature and everything else that we talked about. He's speaking to... So, uh, the, the sense that there are angels actually assigned to churches. There are angels that are assigned to individuals. We see that in the Scripture. Um, Showing you the angel of each one. And he usually then gives an address of himself. Talks about... You're, you okay, Bill? Yeah. He gives an address to himself, gives a title, right? Um, and, uh, and those titles somehow apply. And then he's, as he's talking to each church, he will usually encourage them somehow. This I know about you. This is what's good. And uh, you help me, sound. Brian. There we go. Sorry about that. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> uh, if that's the worst that happened, we're going good. Yeah, exactly. I can say, <laughs> true. I, I kind of like the music. It put me right to sleep. <laughs> um, he builds them up and encourages them, and then he talks about something they've got to deal with. All but two of them. talks about something they've got to deal with. Now, the two that he doesn't talk about something they have to deal with, what are they going through? Yeah, they're going through tribulation. People are dying. And, uh, um, and he's encouraging them in their devotion to be faithful all the way to death. Um, and, then, uh, and then he gives, but, but after he gives, this is what you got to fix. This is what you got to do. He gives a promise. To those who do it, to those that conquer, to those that overcome, here's a promise. And we find that those promises all relate to what? Almost all of them relate to something specific. This is a good one. Sorry, I'm going to give away 79 points if somebody can nail this. You're just thinking about how he talks about the crowns that they'll get or something? Mm -hmm. Yep. Rewards, that's right. That's right. When and where do those rewards come into play? Judgment Day. Yeah, well, judgment Day, but we've got to be more specific. After what? Death. After death. Yeah, it's actually after death and then something after that. In the new the millennium Jerusalem. In the new Jerusalem, in the, Garden of, in the new Garden of Eden that's to come. They're all end time. They're eschatological. So if y'all hit around that, give yourself some points off that. Just pick how many you want. Um, yeah, they're all eschatological and they refer to the Garden. They refer to the Garden of Eden, which we see at the end of the book. We see the, the culmination of God restoring everything he intended from the beginning. And that's the thing we need to keep in our mind. This is a thought I had yesterday. I was actually talking to my son. I didn't All last right. 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to throw this out there and we'll jump in. Um, I was talking to my son at, uh, on the phone last night. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but it just hit me. Um, we all know that the Lord's returning, right? Mm-hmm. Hey! <laughs> we know the Lord's returning. Um, when's it going to happen? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. How many points? How many points? When the Father says... God yeah. all right. So, when the Father says... Do you all hear that? When the Father says... So let me ask this question. This was huge because I never—it's it, not that I couldn't have said this before, but it hit me in a very unique and profound way. And it may mean nothing to you when you hear it, but it had an impact on me. When the Father says, "What's the Father waiting for?" The right time. What's the right time? I don't think have waiting for the right time. He's He's waiting for all the people supposed to come to Christ. Okay. Well martyrs.
1: All right, the, yeah, the fullness
0: of that. All right. It says, until uh, Israel declares, blessed be. That's right, Jesus said that. When, when, when you, Jerusalem, declare, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord, that's when you'll see me again. Oh, Hashem, yeah. yeah. Hashem Yeshua. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, so here's the short answer of all these, it puts all these together. When God's done. Now, what's it take for God to finish? Message. To what? Takes us. Exactly. We need to finish. When we when we have done what he wants us to do, then he's done. When we've really finalized. Do you catch that? Do you catch this? Because Peter says this. Peter actually says, Second Peter, look it up. He says you can actually speed up the day when Jesus returns. He says you can hasten it. It's in Second Peter, look it up later, write it down and check me. You can hasten it. It's in Second Peter chapter three. So I get to turn that real fast. And so people are looking at me like, no, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. No, he sure. Verse uh, 12. I'll start in 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and, catch this, hastening the coming of the day of God. The way we live carrying out the plan of God, will speed up the time Christ comes back. The Father's not waiting for an arbitrary day. It's not something he's like, okay, I'm done. He literally has a plan, and when he's done, that's when Jesus comes, and we literally are living on this earth with Jesus in complete kingdom of righteousness. I mean, can you imagine living, you know, right here, living right here, you know, I don't know where... We're gonna end up living, but say we're right here in Kingwood. Living right here in Kingwood, in complete righteousness? Messiah? What's that take? It takes us saying, Father, what is it that you need done today? What do you need done today? And as soon as we have all the days we've done that, then Jesus comes back. It's that simple. It's like it's like this. (laughs) This is a perfect example. Um, we My my sister-in-law has a farm. And um, when her two boys were little, uh, this is actually before our kids were born, Diane and I went and were visiting my sister-in-law uh, out on her farm, and the two boys had there was a stack of firewood on this end of the porch, and they had to move the stack of firewood down to that end of the porch. And it was a stack of firewood that was, you know, like this. It was a little hefty. And they're, they're like five and seven, something like that, or maybe seven and nine. They're not... They're not too little to do it. It's not too hard for them. But they didn't want to do it. And, and, their, and their parents said, look, as soon as you do that, you can go play. You can go do whatever you want. You just got to do that. And, they're, and we, so we come, and they're sitting there moping. Oh! And you see every now and then they pick up a piece of wood and they take it. Oh! I'm like, what's up, guys? We got to move all that wood down, all the way down there. And like, Okay, what happens when you're done? Well, then we can go do what we want. Oh! What's the, what's the problem, guys? We gotta move all of it. Well, then why don't you just move it? If you actually like, put a little elbow grease, it'd take you all 15 minutes. <coughs> it's not that much wood. It's like you 15, oh! And I'm telling you, it took them three hours. <laughs> three hours? I'm like, seriously? <clears throat> but what's the difference between that, uh, that and us complaining about everything and not doing what Jesus actually yeah, wants us to know. do? <laughs> they were getting paid by the hour. They were getting paid by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, we had a, um, i I'm sorry, your sister hit me. i got to jump into the text. All right. One more story and then I'll jump in. We had a pile of dirt. I was... Uh, Doesn't matter why, there's a whole story, but we had this huge pile of dirt in our backyard. It was about that high and probably five, six foot in diameter. And Isaac and Brenda were little, I mean like four and six little, maybe even, oh yeah, about four and six. And they had a little tiny plastic wheelbarrow, a little tiny plastic bucket and a little tiny, you know, the beach shovels and buckets, the Mm -hmm. little one like that. And Diane says, okay guys, I want you to move that dirt down the street behind the neighbor's house out in the woods where you could allow allowed to dump it over the fence. And, um, and no, seriously. it so they would be out there and she would, they wouldn't have to do it like all day long, but they have so many minutes each day that have to go out and put dirt in a little shovel, fill up their little wear walk down the street and put it down. I'm like, <laughs> those kids, I mean, it wasn't but a couple of weeks and then all that dirt was gone. It was gone. You know the old story, how do you eat an elephant? One at a time. How many people want Jesus to come back? Anybody else? What's up to us? Alright, so, Pergamon. This is Jesus talking to these churches. And, uh, and so we did the first two letters. Let me turn this thing back on. Um, we did the first two letters, and now we're going to get into the third church. Uh, we did Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus needed to return to their what? First love. Smyrna needed to what? Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Okay? They were one of the good churches. There wasn't anything. He's just like, just be faithful. Alright. So now we're in Pergamum. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 2. You can read along in your Bible or you can read up here with us. And it says this. Let's, actually, let's do this. Let's read this together. We've never done that before. If y'all can see this. who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will will give give some some of the the hidden manna, and I will will give give him him a white stone with with a new name name written on the stone that that no one one knows except the one who receives it. it. So, a couple of things to point out. Remember, interesting. He doesn't say, hear what the Spirit says to the church, even though he's talking to a specific church. This is how we know this is an open letter for all of us to look at. Hear what the Spirit's saying to everyone. He's dealing, yes, specifically with them, but he's also making an open letter. You'll see that's plural in every single one. All right, so let's break this down. Let's see what's going on. Pergamum was a very large, long, prosperous city, and it had taken the lead in assisting Rome in defeating other kings of the east. So it was a big Roman outpost. Um, Jesus is revealed here as he said, I will come and, and kill them with the sword, make war with the sword of my mouth. He's revealed as one with a sword. Now, now we know he just talked about Antipas, my, fable, my, my servant who was killed. So we know that there's a martyr here, and it's a reminder that Jesus is saying, um, I'm the one who has the right to execute, not the Romans. He's the one with the sword. One thing that we're going to see, I, I said this on Sunday, I'm going to point this out again here. One thing we're going to see when you read the scriptures, there is absolutely nothing about separating private life from public life in the Bible. We're going to see he is outright calling the Romans out. He's outright calling pagan culture out. And he's expecting believers to live in a way that is public so that those who are under uh, those systems can see and have a witness. Um. He holds the power of the sword. Jesus is the one that holds the power of the sword. When he returns, this is a, 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 what, um, what text does it say this? What text does it say I believe it's in, uh, I believe it's in Thessalonians. It says when he returns, his very appearance, in one text, this is just, his very appearance destroys his enemy. Another says that, that the, he conquers. He conquers simply by the, a sword, but that sword is from his mouth. His word. That's why we call it, you know, you pick your swords up and we're going to have a sword battle. We're going to see who can find a scripture. you have never heard that. If you've been around a while, you've heard that term. But the word of God is, is a two-edged sword. 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 Hebrews, right? All right. Now the prophets often use the picture, the motif of a sword as a symbol for war. So that would have been well understood. And what does Jesus say? He's about to make war against the false prophets. There's false prophets. Um, and, um, and he's about to make war and he uses a motif that they would have well understood alright so this is verse 16 therefore repent if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth so this is pointing, pointing out that text by the way what does repent mean yeah so the Greek word for repent means to change your mind okay that's what it means change your mind <laughs> the Hebrew word is teshuvah, or shuv, um, which simply means to, to return. It's a returning. And you'll see it over and over. Uh, Ezekiel, I like Ezekiel is one of my favorite places of work. you see, return to me, return to me. When he's saying that, he's actually a call to repentance. The same thing Jesus is saying. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Return to me, return to me. Or what? Or I will make war. He doesn't play. There's no playing. I think that's important for us to get. Because how easy is it to play church? Mm. You know, we live life and play church. I can, you know, hey, man, I'm in the business world. and I got all these things. I got to do all that. But as long as I show up on Sunday. All right, let me keep going. Um, so um, this is... Um, he said, this is, he talks about the city here where Satan's throne dwells in the text, right? Where Satan's throne. is. I know you are where Satan's throne is. And there's several theories about what is Satan's throne. One is a spiritual stronghold um, that, that we're just talking about a spiritual stronghold being Satan's throne. There are many pagan cults there. Um, and so some talk about the pagan cults being Satan's throne. There is specifically a U-shaped altar that is a throne for Zeus. I'm going to show you a picture of it in a minute. It's a colonnaded court. It's about 120 by 112 uh, rectangle with an 18-foot high podium. It's decorated with serpent sculptures. And and Zeus is the chief deity of the Greek pantheon. Here you go. Um, It's got serpent sculptures in here. These are the colonnades that was talking about. It's an 18-foot podium inside of that thing. So it could well be that that is of, of what um, uh, Jesus was referring to, but it, some of the other theories is that it could also be referring to the imperial cult. What's the imperial cult? The worship of who? The, uh, Caesar. Caesar. Worship of Caesar. Okay, that was worth twenty-three points right there. So, yeah. Um, uh, do what? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Hey, hastening the day, one point at a time. <laughs> um uh this the imperial cult they actually had built um uh, august uh, supposed to be augustus sorry, built a temple to augustus, Caesar Augustus. It was a rock citadel that was way up high and was visible from a great distance, so some scholars think that that might have been uh, what he was referring to, regardless, and here's the point, regardless, Satan has a major stronghold okay Satan. Absolutely. Regardless, <laughs> regardless, Satan has a major, <laughs> that was perfect timing. Perfect. Thank you, Joe. I'll pay you later. All right. <laughs> uh, Satan has a major stronghold. there. So here's the thing. Here's the point. Jesus is, <laughs> do I? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Satan's throne is... No, I will say that. Jesus makes the connection that the false prophets were cooperating with Satan's agendas. And that's the point. He's making a, con- a connection between these people who are in the church calling themselves prophets. Um, uh, but they're actually following Satan's agendas, not, not the Lord. So, there's, he calls a guy in here, he calls him Balaam. Now, obviously his name's not Balaam. He's making a connection to this individual... In the Hebrew Scriptures, who actually is Balaam, there is a real guy named Balaam. He was a greedy man, and he was, um, he was hired by the king of Moab, uh, Balak, to put a curse on the Israelites. And he's on the way. Anybody remember? He's, he was donkeys. This is the famous talk- talking donkey story, right? No, I don't. You don't know the story? Okay, perfect. I was waiting for one person who didn't know it. <laughs> this is awesome. So here's um, Balaam. And this is a, to me it's a very sad story because Balaam uh, he was a pagan prophet but he called on Yahweh he called on Yahweh there were people who knew of and worshipped Yahweh outside of Israel I don't know how many people knew that there were people who knew of and worshipped Yahweh outside of Israel Okay, Abraham had many children only one Isaac led to the Israelites but he had several other children Ishmael being one, and then his second wife after Sarah died, Keturah, had several children there. So there were many people who knew about Yahweh. And so here's Balaam, and he, um, and so Balaam comes to him and says, dude, I'm going to make you rich. Just come and curse these people because I know we can't face them on the battlefield. They're killing people. We've been, I mean, look, they did to to Egypt. They destroyed Egypt. We can't face that. So Balaam, uh, Balaam says, Well, I'll ask Yahweh. He says, Yahweh says, No, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And he says, Well, he sent more people. Look how much. He's, and, and, and so Balaam goes back to Yahweh, Please let me go, please. And Yahweh says, Go, but you're only allowed to say what I'm about to say. Balaam gets it in his head that he's going to say what he wants to say because he wants the money. He's riding on his donkey and he's heading down the way and it's on this narrow path and his donkey brushes him up against uh, this wall. And Balaam starts beating the smack out of this donkey, and this donkey stops and won't let him go forward. Balaam's beating the smack out of this donkey. Do what? I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, and finally, the donkey turns around and says, "Why in the world are you beating me?" Huh. <laughs> donkey actually says this. Now, it's amazing enough that the donkey says this. It's more amazing to me that Balaam talks back. <laughs> Like, he talks to his donkey all the time in a conversation. Maybe that should tell us something about, but anyway. (laughs) So, he talks back, he says, you know, he says, when have I ever led you wrong? When have I ever been a bad donkey? And then all of a sudden, um, the angel of Yahweh appears before him and says, that donkey just saved your life. I was about to take your life. He says, now, I told you, you only say what Yahweh says when you go to the Moabites. He says, "All right, I only say what Yahweh says." So he shows up, and he gets into the, this. Um, uh, you know, goes through his incantation, and uh, um, and he prophesies, and he prophesies good over Israel. And Balak's like, "What did you do? I wanted you to curse him." He says, "Well, I go over here. Maybe Yahweh will let me curse him from over here." So he gets into his. You know, prof- goes through his prophetic dance. And he prophesies again. He prophesies good over, over Israel. And, um, and Balak's like, we pay, we're going to pay you all this money, and you're going to keep blessing them? You're not getting any money if you don't curse them. So he takes one more time. Let me do this one more time. And this time, he, 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 he just goes straight into a, a prophetic, and it's an absolutely amazing, beautiful, prophetic um, uh, uh, blessing he gives over Israel. It's actually messianic. It talks about the star of the Messiah coming later uh, in this prophecy. And um, it's really beautiful. Uh, And Balak's like, I had it. I'm done. And that's where you kind of end the story with Balaam. But we learn later that Balaam and Balak had this conversation because Balaam still wants the money. He's a greedy guy. Now, this is what's so sad to me. Three times he prophesied from Yahweh amazing things that are in Scripture that have come to pass about Israel. Three times God used them powerfully. Your gifting has nothing to do with your character. Your gifting has nothing to do with your... So often we exalt somebody because... Look at all the gifting that person has. And the sad thing is, is he's actually known as one of the evil people of Scripture. Because what he did was this. He said, look, if you want to defeat Israel, you're not going to defeat them by cursing. You're not going to defeat them by fighting. You're going to defeat them by getting them... To, to be unfaithful to their own God. That's you're going to do it. So what Moab does, Moab, they, they, go, they go to uh, they go all their women. They call the women. We need a ladies' meeting. They have a ladies' meeting in Moab. See, so ladies, we need you to go down there and, and attract the men. Get yourself some men and tell them, uh, talk them into having meals with you that are offered to our God's taught them into mixing their Yahweh with their Hamash, with their gods. And that's what they do. They start doing this. And there's a plague that breaks out and it starts killing them. And so this is, what, this is all what's going on here when Jesus is saying, this guy that's in the church, he's a Balaam. He's a Balaam. Why? Because he's, a, um, he's specializing in two particular sins, sexual immorality and food after ah, oh, See, Balaam. Balaam was going to find a way to get his money. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. To come to the sacrifice, you're going to have a meal. You're eating these foods, sacrificed. Now, that didn't mean they stopped worshiping Yahweh. It just meant they mixed That's Numbers 2, 2, 2 Numbers 31, a few chapters later. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain uh, Evi, Rakim, Zer, Chu, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Why? Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Against Yahweh in the incident of Peor, and so the plague come among the, came among the congregation of the Lord, congregation of Yahweh. He's the one that gave them the plan, and so this is what Jesus is talking about. See, the the sins of the, the, these sins were typical of paganism. The difference is that there is a false prophet in the congregation leading God's people into these sins, calling God's judgment on them. It was nothing, you know. Jesus isn't sitting there judging pagans for being pagan. He's judging his people who are now embracing paganism, yet bearing his name. By the way, that's what the, the, the commandment in the Bible says, do not bear the, um, the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't mean don't say, oh God. That's not what it means. To bear his name means you have taken his name on your life. And now when you live your life, you're bearing his name. So you need to bear it, not in vain. You need to bear it with holiness. You need to bear it with honor. You need to bear it with grace, with truth, with love. I used to tell my kids when they were little, I said, when you guys leave and you walk out the door, you're carrying three names. I said, first and foremost, you carry the name of Jesus. So what you do is going to reflect on him. Secondly, you carry the name Bracado. So what you do is going to reflect on our family. Third name, you carry your own name. And the Bible says a reputation is not something you want to lose. A good reputation, that is. Bad reputation, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Note, some believe that sexual immorality is a metaphor for unfaithfulness to God, uh, as so often used by the prophets. In this, we he's talking about, these, <clears throat> he's teaching sexual immorality. Over and over and over, the prophets talk about your, your unfaithfulness, your, your prostituting yourselves, he's actually talking about them not living and believing loyalty to God. By, by, being, by, by inviting syncretism, bringing compromise into the camp, he call, he, that is equivalent in God's eyes as uh, um, adultery, un, uh, sexual immorality. And that's used over and over in the prophets that way. In fact, I was teaching through Ezekiel one time and there are chapters in Ezekiel it's like, did I actually read that out loud in church? I mean, some of the language is so strong in Ezekiel it's like, wow uh, I, I swear this actually happened to me, there was one passage that was actually kind of graphic and um, uh, the pastor uh, <laughs> pastor actually said to me say, I need somebody to read today, will you read the passage no. out loud today? Honestly <laughs> And so he said, oh yeah, sure, I'll read it. He says, okay, here it is. And so I looked down and I'm reading it out loud. I didn't realize what I was about to say until I read out loud. Oh, he just did that to me. <laughs> that actually happened. Anyway, sorry, I digress. How Balaam succeeded was not a direct attack on Yahweh. He didn't directly attack him. He did not attempt to get the people to deny Yahweh. There's no denying Yahweh here. Yahweh still Yahweh. He simply got them to mix pagan practices with their worship. Syncretism. <coughs> Syncretism, a word we all need to know. Mixing incompatible elements of religions or worldviews. Mixing incompatible elements of religions or worldviews. No. The key here is incompatible. Go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Go back. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. And if you want my slides, I don't mind. Just send me a text and I'll send you the slides. Yeah. So that was made physical. With Hosea, right? The prophet Hosea, who marries a prostitute. And so... Yeah, so... Yeah, so Hosea is is a perfect example of of how God is using... One of the things God does in the prophets, and this actually comes out in the book of Revelation, because God does that with His people. One of the things He does is the prophets actually have to live out whatever they're going to preach. And Hosea was getting ready to preach. You guys are unfaithful to God. And that breaks the heart of God. And God said, before you preach it, I want you to go marry somebody who's going to be unfaithful to you. So when you preach it, you can preach it from my heart. Wow. Jesus doesn't play. But this is encouraging. Why? Because when we do that, he comes back sooner. Yeah, Hosea ended up marrying this woman who was a prostitute, and it was Gomer. what did he just say, he said, when you do that, he comes back to now, when we do what? When we walk out in obedience to what God wants us to do in our time and our culture, and uh, um, that hastens the day that he comes, when we live lives that are, uh, um, I I don't want to change the word obedience. Because we all hear it the wrong way. I want, to hear it, I want to change it to this. When we live in believing loyalty. When we live in faithfulness to Him. Believing loyalty. That's what He's called. The word faith, that's what it actually means. In Greek, it's pistis. In Hebrew, it's aman or imunah. Um, and it actually means faithfulness or believing loyalty. It doesn't mean, you know, my doctrinal statement... Okay, my cognitive set of beliefs, faith. It means I'm living in a way that demonstrates what I actually truly believe. That's what it means. All right, so syncretism is to mix that, to mix that with incompatible elements. Now, that's very key to say incompatible. Why? And so what are some incompatible elements we've seen in our world? One, ancestral veneration in certain cultures. Uh, Mixing pre-Christian deities, uh, you see in certain places in Latin America. Using traditional healers, you see in in different places in Africa. I I know um, one of the issues in Kenya they they were talking about is that people would go um, uh, to one witch doctor who would put a curse on somebody, another one who would take them off and then go to church to make sure they had all their bases covered. Okay, now I I say all that, but let's talk about us. Holding atheistic, materialistic, and/or secular values and suppositions in the West, mm-hmm. while calling yourself a believer, i.e., anti-supernaturalism, uh, privatizing religion in society, religion for show, mm. empty of relationship with God, using horoscopes and psychic hotlines. I hope You can't worship both God and money, embracing materialistic values. Name it, Okay? So, my point is, beware lest we judge those in Pergamum for their blindness to a cultural buy-in while ignoring our own cultural buy-ins. We should learn the lesson. Yeah, there's some real cultural buy-ins here. And it's easy to look at, you know, and say, oh, we're going to look and talk about, you know, people who go to a witch doctor and come over here and we do something in... It's easy to do that. How would we handle it if all of our meat in the marketplace or any major public event was first dedicated to an idol? This is going to come up when we deal with the next church as well. All your meat, you're going to go to the marketplace and all the meat sold there was first sacrificed to Zeus. Get you some Zeus burgers! You got... Bit, we uh, gave uh, that up. Yeah, and, uh, and I did the wrong person, man. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay, get you yeah, a deer, a, a venison burger. I <laughs> know. No, really, no oh, hidden matter. Would we say, oh, we know that those gods are not real? I don't worship those gods in order to justify our eating the only meat available. How many people have ever checked the package of meat and seen if it's halal, halal meat? What halal? There's there's meat in the marketplaces right now that have been uh, um, dedicated Muslim, uh, Islamic meat. Did y'all know that? No. Mm-mm. Go to certain restaurants. You'll see a sign. The meat here is halal. Uh-huh. <coughs> question. Yes. Is it question time? Or? Is it? Uh, sure, you can throw <coughs> one in there. I'm probably going to get through one church tonight, guys. I'm sorry. go okay, ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, what do you say about Peter when he went, you know, he was having that problem? Um, that was a different situation. Okay. That wasn't that problem. What Peter was doing was this. So, um, you've you got to understand the cultural eccentricities of the time. Gentiles were unclean people to Jews. Jews. They were, they were, you know. Okay, I know you're a Christian, but you're not quite Jewish, and so therefore, now, now, this actually came out of from a good place. Why? Um, uh, so I may read through Leviticus and you read all these laws about clean and unclean, clean and unclean. All right, I'll tell you. If you think that's God's laws on sanitary pre. Pre science understanding of sanitary, you've got it completely wrong. It had nothing to do with sanitary. Okay? I've actually heard people say that. Well, you know, God in the Bible had ways that, you know, that we know about germs and he just did this. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with something called ritual purity. And it has to do with this. This world, how many know that this world is tainted by sin and death? Sin and death is what you have in this world. All right. So, the more that we come in contact with sin and death, and then want to enter into a holy place like a temple or a tabernacle, we are physically impure. We are in contact with death. You cannot bring death into life. What will happen? Well, look at what happened in Nadab and Abedu, the two sons of the high priest Aaron, when they brought something unclean into the tabernacle. They were killed. Okay, they were struck down. And it wasn't necessarily a sin, it was something wrong. Okay? So this was a big deal, ritual uncleanness. Well, in Israel, by the time you get to the first century, they had gone through these cycles of exile, you know, sinning and judgment and going away and then come back. Well, ritual cleanness became a big thing by the time it during the Second Temple period, from the, the time the end of exile to the time when Jesus was walking. And that became a big thing, and they overemphasized ritual purity. They overemphasized it, to the fact that they actually add some practices about ritual purity that actually aren't in the Bible. Um, well, part of that is a lot of Gentiles, you know, they used to, like, bury their dead in their houses, or they would come contact. The, the most ritually unclean you could be is coming into contact with a dead person. That's the most ritually unclean you could be, Okay. Um, And so they would, you know, pagans, they didn't have these rituals, same type, but they had ritual cleansing laws. They were different. And having the contact with the dead was something that would have been regular. And so pagans were seen, Gentiles were seen as just unclean. You don't come in contact with them. So much so, it was considered unlawful to even go in their house and eat. It was considered unlawful. Even if they were eating clean food, it was unlawful for you to go into their house because you're putting yourself in what, what could potentially be a highly ritually unclean position. Now, it's important to understand being ritually unclean is not a sin necessarily. There's a lot of very natural, normal things that happen in life that make you ritually unclean. Yeah. Any kind of bodily fluids made you ritually unclean. Any kind. Okay? So... By the time Peter, you know, remember the story with Peter and Cornelius? Cornelius sees an angel, sends, Peter, sends people to get Peter. Peter comes and, and God tells Peter ahead of time before it even happens. Listen, you guys, uh, you need to know that um, uh, Peter, you need to know I'm telling you to go. So it doesn't matter who shows up at your door. I've sent them to you. Go and I'll tell you what to do when you go there. So appears like being set up. He doesn't know he to show up. He did not know what happened next to you. Know, a whole bunch of Gentiles set up and said, Hey, you've got to come talk to our boss. And so he goes, he walks in the house and he tells them, Y'all know it's illegal for me to be in here. There is not a law in the Bible that says you can't be in there. This was a cultural thing that had made its way into the religious practices of Second Temple Judaism. There's not a law in the Bible that says they couldn't go there. But it's become a cultural prejudice. Alright? So... Um. Uh, how do we get on this? Why did y'all ask me that? Somebody asked me that. I asked that. Peter. So Peter, the whole thing was going on with Peter. So Peter comes to Galatia, and uh, before, um, while he's there, he's sitting down and he's having table fellowship with these believers who come come from, from the Gentile world, and they're fellowshipping and they're like, all oh, in this awesome. This is great. Well, a whole contingent uh, of believers show up, Messianic believers show up from Jerusalem, and there's this cultural tension. You know, look, these are real people. These are real people. Just because they were saved didn't mean they had dealt with everything that needed to dealt with. Some like sound like some other people we know like us. Anyway, they're struggling with things too, figuring this out. Well, Peter steps away from eating with them and, and separates himself so that he doesn't look bad to these guys over here. And that's what Paul calls him out for. But Paul calls him out. That's what's in Galatians. Do what? That's happened somewhere else. When he, was, when he went to go to that guy's house and eat, that was two separate events. It wasn't one, all, all at one time. This, you're, you're, I'm specifically referring to Galatians when Paul calls him out, why he calls him out. He calls him out because he would eat with them when the, when the Jews from James and uh, um, Jerusalem weren't there, but when they came, he wouldn't eat with them, and it has to do with the cultural prejudice, not with the food itself. Are, is he talking about the sheet that came down yeah. and told... Are you talking you about, about the sheet? The mm-hmm. yeah. The dream, where the sheep came yeah. down and had all the food and God told him to come from it. Okay, so, alright, alright. Um, when oh, just, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit that real fast and you all can ask me on it later. Let me just say this. That's Acts chapter 10. Peter sees a sheep come down from heaven and, it, and it's interesting because the Greek in there has two different words on there. It has uh, uh, items that are ak- uh, akathartos and items that are koine. In other words, items that are uh, um, uh, creatures that are... Um, um, inherently unclean and creatures that have been clean but made un- unclean. Um, uh, and so it has both of them on there and God says uh, Peter, rise up and eat. Peter says, "Ooh, I would never eat that. No, I would never defy myself. And this happens three times. And um, then God says to him when it's all over, he says, listen. He says, he's thinking about why am I seeing this? And God says, don't call what I call clean, unclean. Don't call what I call clean, unclean. And a lot of people have mistaken and thought that that God was dealing with food there. Because it tells you, if you read chapter 10 very carefully, it says Peter was sitting there and he's going, What in the world did that mean? What in the world did that mean? What are you trying to tell me, Lord? What are you trying to tell me? Peter didn't know what it meant. When Peter goes with the Gentiles to Cornelius' house and goes inside, he goes, Now I know what he meant. He doesn't want me to call Gentiles unclean. had nothing to do with food. He used food as a metaphor to get him to see his cultural prejudices. That's what that passage has to do with. It has nothing to do with food whatsoever. And it's in the text. You can leave it. If you know that, go back and read the text and you'll see it. So you think while they was there they didn't have no food? Um, Okay, he would not have... So chances are while he was there, Cornelius was a God-fearer. He would not have brought unkosher food into the house. It seemed like there was a couple of places though when Paul though, was like... Got on to Peter. Well, no, and was saying like, when I'm with the Gentiles, I'll eat whatever they eat. I don't care. Okay. But the Gentiles this is interesting that we're going down this road. Because this has nothing to do with what's going on over here. People and their food in there. Li- okay, let me... I'm going to Yeah, it's dinner time. Um, hang on, let me... Um, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back and you look at the text where Paul talks about food, um, it's interesting. He never actually ch- says anything about the food laws being abrogated. Okay? And you have to actually look at the Greek in a lot of it to get it. Alright? There's two key words. We, we call them both unclean. There's one word that actually means common and the other means unclean. This one is akathartos, and I don't know how to spell it. And this one is koine. This is a reference to if, um, well, let's say, let's say you killed a deer. Okay. And, um, and so deer's considered clean and so you're like, man, I'm going home. I'm going to have some, you know, well, some venison burgers, have chili. My dime makes awesome venison chili. we we'll have some venison chili tonight but it comes in contact um, with, I don't know, uh, a raven, you know, an unclean animal. Well, it's now gone from being clean to being made, um, being made common. It's no longer clean. It's not acceptable anymore, okay? It was normally clean, but it became unclean. So the animals the that are unclean were in the sheets. On the sheet, it had both. It had both, and the language shows both there, okay? So this is just we I'm just trying to understand ritual, uh, Jewish ritual laws. I want to say this up front. This has absolutely nothing to do with understanding. Well, there is one little piece that has to do with it. But what he's talking about here is food sacrifice to idols, and that's different. And we'll touch on that in just a second. Actually, that's, um, then there are other types of uh, uh, food or not food, other types of animals that were intrinsically unclean and would have never been considered food to begin with. You know, probably our favorite one is pigs, right? Pork. Um, that would have never been considered food. It just wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been on the menu. So it's not a food I going to begin with. And now this, if you're, if you're Jewish and you're following ritual kosher laws, this is going to be a thing for you. This is what you're not going to eat and this is what you're going to eat. Um, the issue we have here is different. Let's say I uh, I killed a deer, but after I killed a deer, I took it to my temple and I offered it to Zeus. By me offering it to Zeus, it just became unclean. And Paul's very clear about this. He says, look, it's not that if we eat it, that somehow we are doing something internally and like we're going to... It's not that. It's that by partaking of it, what we are doing is giving a witness to others that we acknowledge their gods. So halal meat is more than cultural? Halal meat's been dedicated. I didn't know that. By yeah. a priest. That is <laughs> the culture? In a mom or something like that. Yeah. How do you tell, if you're in a Roman? Do what? How do you know where you took fruit? It didn't come from the safe way. I didn't I mean, when they got the meat, right? Yeah, and so this became... An, you're talking about back then in Second yeah. Temple? This became an issue. Paul talks about this in Romans 14, this very issue. In Romans 14, he says, Some people eat vegetables, some people eat meat. You know what the rule was? It's very simple. We all know this rule, especially if you were in the military 20 years ago. Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> that is, that's the rule. So what Paul says. Don't ask, don't tell. If nobody tells you, you're good enough. If somebody says... Hey, man, we're going to have some Apollo meat today. Say, not me. Yeah, you yeah never know what you around here. Okay, but, but if you go to the marketplace and there's no sign that says Apollo meat, it just says cow, eat away. But there were some people who said, that's not good enough for me. I need to know. And if I don't know, I'm not going to eat. And what Paul says is this. This is very, very important to get because this applies to all of us. Paul says, some of you... Aren't going to be comfortable because you know the person selling it and you know they probably brought that straight from Diana's temple. And so you're going to say, I'm not, don't ask, don't tell, it's not a good enough standard for me. I will violate my conscience if I eat that. Then don't eat it. <coughs> but there are other people who are going to say, you know, sometimes they go to Diana, sometimes they don't. As long as I am not demonstrating to the person who's giving it to me an honor to a pagan god, then I'm okay. That's what's going on in Romans 14. That's what's going on in uh, Corinthians. That's actually what's going on in Daniel. When Daniel and his three friends said we're going to eat vegetables for so many days, because all the meat that they would have gotten from the, the Babylonians would have been meat that was dedicated. So it's like, look, we're not going to defile ourselves with meat dedicated to idols. By the way, the one prohibition given to Gentiles about food is not eating. Well, there's a couple. One is not eating meat that's been strangled. That has the blood in it. So blood, not eating blood, is, is, a, is a prohibition to Gentiles. And number two, um, eating meat, sacrificed to idols. Those are two prohibitions <laughs> on food um, given to Gentiles. So in the New Earth, most people will to eat eating meat. Right. I don't know. Perhaps. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, because, and I'll tell you, you get Isaiah, right? You get past Isaiah where you see the wolf lying down with the lamb. Yeah. And then you return to the to Eden place. In Eden, you know, go to the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, it says, I've given you all the plants of the earth for food. And it was only food for, for humans, also food for the animals. And there's an argument that's been made that animals didn't even eat each other till after the flood. Not even after the fall, but after the flood. Was an argument that said that people really didn't eat meat until then, but they still used animals as a, as a means for core bonding to God, drawing near to God. We were just talking about this. My co-workers and I—we were talking about how humans, like this, probably has nothing to do with like the Bible, but humans weren't like their teeth weren't designed to actually uh, pull meat. Um, so where where that's why um, they do say that you know in Genesis when. Uh, God gave us a plants so that that's what we were supposed to be, you yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. On. Absolutely, our, you know, if we were natural, uh, prey with you know, with meat, we would right. have like sharp teeth and we'll be able to prey on them naturally, and we won't have to cut and cook and clean and everything. So, yeah, no, that's good. There's, there's some things that show anatomically that you know, plant food's good for us, but the scripture also <laughs> talks about, um, um, doesn't prohibit not eating, uh, eating only plant food, although some of us here would say that those. <laughs> We're just practicing. That's right, practicing for eating. <laughs> eating for eating ahead of time. and, and um, But see, here's the point. With all of these things, what are we doing? We're living according to our conscience. Don't violate your conscience. Now, there are some standards, and this is, takes us to this next thing here. Well, um, um, there are some standards that say, here's the standard, don't violate it. If you violate it, even if it doesn't bother your conscience, you violated it. Now, there's also the standard of your conscience. If you are, if by conscience you can't eat it, then don't eat it. And by the way, if you know it violates someone else's conscience, don't eat it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this is important. This is important. Do you all follow this? We all good? Can I go forward? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All right. So what happens if you have close relatives and friends that are having a wedding or an important event and it's at the Temple of Aphrodite? Do you go? Do you justify yourselves? Or do you separate yourself? How do you handle that? Now, a lot of us go, you know, how often are we going to go to the Temple of Aphrodite? Except that that might be what they call a wedding place nowadays. But... Um, but uh, you know, I have a friend. His name is George Waffle. I'm going to talk about, I've been to Kenya, that's why I have some experience there. And he was telling me that um, one of the funerals, the, of, I don't know if this is, it was a very close family member, and I forget which one it was, but it was a very close family member, he couldn't go. Because they sacrificed animals to, you know, pagan gods, part of the funeral. So can not go. What does Aphrodite mean? It's a goddess. It's a Greek goddess, Aphrodite. Um, what if your trade guild, which is your means of making a living, had regular meals dedicated to the gods? Now, we're going to touch on trade guilds even more when we get to the next passage in the next church. So I'm not going to spend time on it. But the whole point is, is what if your means, if you belong, if, you know, um, if you belong to uh, uh, a trade guild and um, and your means of making a living tied to worshiping false gods, are you going to allow your faith to cost you your ability to work? Yes. this is a real question this is what they were facing this is what's going on this is what it means when there's a Balaam standing up in the church saying guys look God wants this to work it's okay to go to this place God doesn't want you to not have if you, bring your own you see how this can happen real okay. easy so go ahead what if you bring <laughs> your bring your own beast but see all right But here's the call. The call from Jesus is to resist food offered to idols and to resist the call to compromise and worldliness. That's the bottom line. Resist the call to compromise and worldliness. Here's the promise. Notice how it's all this discussion about food and what's he promised? I'm going to give you hidden manna. Isn't that cool? He's having this discussion about food. He turned around and says, so you're going to get some sweet food. By the way, manna, the Hebrew for manna, Means what it what it translated in English it literally means what's this? then a lot of what's this falling from the sky that they could eat every day. Oh, that's it, better than I thought. Yeah, they made you know I'm sure they made stuff like Bamana bread. You know that's right. Manicotti. <laughs> that's right. I'll, I'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> Try the chicken. It hasn't been dedicated to anybody. So um, manna was hidden in the ark. There was some manna they took and they hid in the ark. Now, we know that the physical ark will not be restored. That's what it says in Jeremiah 3.16. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Jeremiah prophesies this. But there is a heavenly ark and we're going to see it in a few chapters. Yeah, it's going to be cool. And when... Oops, did I hit the right button here? what about the third temple? They're trying to say there's one, right? Yeah, so... um, So, there is a movement in Israel right now um, that uh, there are a lot of people that believe that there will be a physical third temple. Okay? Um, And some people believe it will be built before Jesus returns. Other people believe it won't be built until He returns... Other people believe it is a symbol, um, that, uh, very similar to what we're going to see when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Um, and I, I don't know, I've taken different positions at different times. But I will say this, there is a temple institute in Israel. I've actually uh, heard talks directly from one of the head rabbis of it. I've seen, I've got pictures of the, um, of the breastplate with all of the, the jewels on it. I've got pictures of other things. It's actually really cool. It's amazing because you get to see these things that they're, they're recreating um, following these patterns that we saw Moses built originally. Um, but they can't rebuild the ark. There's only one ark. Mm-hmm. They can't rebuild the ark. And there's some talk that they know where the ark is, but no one's ever seen it. And then, you know, I, I actually heard him say it, it was it was where Hezekiah left it when when they were being trampled by the Assyrians. Um, and they know where that location is. So but Jeremiah said it won't be restored. We do know there is a heavenly ark and we're going to see it in a couple of um, uh, we're going to see it in a couple of chapters here. When God's temple in heaven was open, this is from Revelation eleven nineteen, 19, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and a heavy hail.